Tonight, we want to go to the Lord in prayer because this is a, we, we are living in uh, remarkable times. The whole, uh, the whole world is focused right now on what's happening in the very real estate that we're discussing in Joshua. And, uh, and that will continue to be the case until Jesus comes back. And uh, so it's, it's nice to have our own map. It's nice to have our, uh, our AAA atlas here that uh, gives us the real scoop and the real story. So let's bow our heads and pray as we begin tonight. Heavenly Father, we thank you that um, we can view what we see on CNN or Fox or NBC, we can view it through the lens of your word. And Lord, we thank you that uh, even as we watch events that seem to be escalating and uh, spiraling out of control, uh, we have a sense of calm and a sense of peace because we know that you are in absolute charge. Not only the events there, but the events in our lives. Uh, you are absolutely sovereign, and you have a plan that you have been working from before the foundations uh, of the earth. And one day, the scriptures tell us that Jesus is going to uh, return, and he's going to descend, and his feet are going to touch the Mount of Olives, right there across from Jerusalem. When we see Dan Rather reporting from Jerusalem, we see the walled city in the background just on the other side of that is where Jesus is going to return. And that mount is going to split. And then you're going to go in to the city, Lord Jesus, through that eastern gate, uh, a gate that is sealed up and has been sealed up for hundreds of years to keep you out. We thank you that uh, your plan cannot be thwarted. We thank you that your purpose cannot be thwarted. Uh, in Israel or in our lives. So as we look at the book of Joshua, and as we look at the uh, true life situations that Joshua and the Israelites found themselves in, may we gain encouragement tonight. Because uh, as, they, as they were fighting battles, so we too are fighting battles. We're fighting battles here. Every man is fighting a battle on a different front. We're not in combat where we wear fatigues and carrying around M16s, but we're in spiritual battle and spiritual war. And some of us are beat up. Some of us are weary. Some of us are wounded. Some of us are uh, shell-shocked. Quite frankly, we're hurting. Um, we may look like we've got it together on the outside, but uh, quite frankly, inside, many of us are hurt. So encourage us. Remind us of what's true. Remind us that you're in charge and that you have a plan for us that nothing will get in the way of. You will accomplish what concerns us, and it's a good plan. Open our eyes. The tiredness just from the events of the day. Some of us have been going since early this morning. Give us a surge of energy and an ability to concentrate and focus, we ask in Jesus' name. This past weekend, I was in uh, eastern Oregon at a ranch called uh, Wild Horse Canyon. It's a 
It's a small little uh, uh, ranch of 64,000 acres uh, that does sit in a canyon. It's miles and miles away from uh, any town whatsoever. You get off paved highway, and to get to the entrance of the ranch, you're on a 12-mile gravel road. Uh, it is 64,000 acres. Uh, it's a small city. Uh, it's owned by Young Life. It has a landing strip uh, that you can land a 727 on. It uh, has a hotel and uh, uh, shopping and facilities. Uh, it's able to handle 6,500 people comfortably. It has its own fire department. Um, what's interesting is, uh, oh, an amazing, an amazing arena uh, that contains, uh, you walk into this building and it contains six full court basketball uh, courts. Uh, plus on each wing is complete workout facilities and volleyball and uh, uh, the largest athletic facility on the West Coast. This is probably, uh, you can't believe how remote this place is. And uh, it's used by Young Life. They use it for uh, uh, kids and uh, retreats and all kinds of stuff. And I was doing a men's conference there. 20 years ago, 20 years ago, it was built by a guy named the Bhagwan Shi Rajneesh. If you have ever seen videotape of what took place uh, at this facility in Eastern Oregon, it's uh, this cult group uh, had 6,000 people living on this facility. They, uh, uh, not everyone was sure what they believed. All they knew was the sex was unbelievable. That's, that's how uh, far gone it was. Um, but these people would come from all over the world and uh, uh, well-educated people, people that had been very, very prosperous, and in looking for truth and looking for meaning, they would follow this guy from India and literally sign over all of their assets to him. He had a um, garage of 90 Rolls Royces. And one of the things I'll show you is you got a 12-mile gravel road going in. And by the way, it's so treacherous that in our group of guys going, there were probably, I don't know, there were probably a couple hundred guys there, 300 guys. Uh, Going in, seven of them got flat tires. Uh, it's not an easy road. But once you're inside the canyon, there's a 12-mile paved asphalt road that goes nowhere. It goes 12 miles and comes to a stop, and you turn around. It was the road that he built uh, just to drive his Rolls Royces. Uh, everyone there was penniless because they had signed everything over to him. And um, it, it's a remarkable place. The first, the first uh, usage of germ warfare in the United States was done at that facility. They got into, in fact, there's a book out on the New York Times bestseller list right now called Germs. And it talks about, there are three authors of the New York Times, and they've done all this research on anthrax and on botulism and Saddam Hussein and all that's going on in the Middle East. But they start by telling the story of the Bhagwan Shi Rajneesh and the fact that around 1979, they got into a dispute with the county commissioners in this uh, uh, remote county in eastern Oregon. And they, uh, 
And they decided to get back by just uh, going to the little restaurant where they would eat. And they um, put salmonella in the salad bar. And uh, first usage of germ warfare in the United States of America. Uh, if you've seen videotape of what used to take place in that athletic facility, they'd have thousands of people in there. And they would bang their drums, and they would, um, they would work themselves in the trances. And they would do what they call whirling dervishes. And the, uh, the pace of the music and the, quite frankly, demonic influence uh, would be so strong in there that people would get so hyped up that they would go in circles as fast as they could possibly go as they uh, were stating their mantras, and they would do this. Imagine going in a circle as fast as you could go. They would do this for hours. Um, it all fell apart. Uh, it was, quite frankly, a place of uh, what the Old Testament would call Baal worship. It was, uh, it was a false god. It was all sexual in nature. Um, it eventually fell apart. What was interesting to me as I was there is that uh, it's, a, it's an absolutely incredible facility. And uh, as I was taking a walk around this lake and this dam, it occurred to me that, uh, that, uh, that a great battle had taken place in that canyon. Uh, that facility was built for the glory of the enemy, and now it's being used uh, for the glory of God. That land was taken for the kingdom. Uh, a man who was not a believer uh, when that whole thing went down, bought the whole thing, looked at developing it, decided it was too much to do, and although he himself, I'm told, is, is not a believer, uh, was aware of the ministry of Young Life and said, you know, these folks could do something with this. And he just deeded it over right to them. So it's remarkable to see how that land was taken and how it's being used for the glory of God. That's what the book of Joshua is all about. Uh, Joshua... Uh, the book of Joshua is about the, uh, it's about leadership and it's about land. Um, and this passage tonight in, in Joshua chapter 10 is, um, is somewhat remarkable because of what occurs in this particular passage. Um, if you've been with us, I'll give you a brief history. They, uh, in Joshua, they're finally going into the promised land, the land that was promised to Abraham. And for you guys that have been here every week, this, this may be getting a little bit old, but it's so contemporary that it's hard not to mention it. Um, all of the fighting that's going on in Israel right now, it's all about land. It's all about the land mentioned in the book of Joshua. It's all about the land promised to Abraham. In Genesis 12, uh, you, you are probably aware of the fact that the Arabs and the Palestinians uh, descend from Abraham's son Ishmael, but the Jews descend from Abraham's son Isaac, who was the promised son. The land was given to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. Uh, this whole conflict, this whole conflict is about uh, is about the land and about a uh, two families that can't get along, uh, and one family is incredibly jealous 
and uh, incredibly resentful and will not be pleased until the other family is exterminated off the face of the earth and driven into the sea. That's the statement of Arafat. So that's what we're dealing with over there. So I'm very optimistic this week we'll see peace. Aren't you? It's not going to happen. Colin Powell's not going to pull it off. Of all people, Colin Powell's not going to pull it off. Uh, I just say that because he's trying to work both sides. That's his job. He's good at what he does. But it's not going to happen because it's a spiritual battle and it's a spiritual conflict. We're looking way back here because in Joshua, at the beginning of the book, they finally go into the promised land. They take it. They take the city of Jericho. And remember, the promised land was inhabited by uh, strong people, by uh, educated people, by uh, militarily superior people to, uh, uh, to Joshua and the people of Israel. They had uh, armored chariots. They had fortified cities. Jericho had walls 30 feet high, an outer wall 12 feet thick, inner wall 6 feet thick. Um, but they took it by the power of God. Uh, Jericho fell flat. Then they went up to Ai, and after a defeat at Ai, uh, because of sin in the camp, they went back, set an ambush, and took Ai. God gave them a great victory. Now we're in Joshua chapter 10. And uh, uh, it tells about the news of the power of the God of Israel and how it's spreading throughout the land. Now, it came about when Adonai Zedek, king of Jerusalem, heard that Joshua had captured Ai and had utterly destroyed it, just as he had done to Jericho and its king, so he had done to Ai and its king, and that the inhabitants of Gibeon had made peace with Israel and were within their land, that he feared greatly, because Gibeon was a great city like one of the royal cities, and because it was greater than Ai, and all its men were mighty. Hey, Les, let me ask you something real quick. Am I recording? I am. Okay, I just wanted to make sure. I had a sudden fear that I was talking in the thin air, <laughs> even as I spoke hot air. I, I was concerned about that. All right. Uh, let me mention something. What's this Gibeon stuff? What's all this about these cities and Adonai Zedek and all this jazz? Let me pull this together for you. Um, as, they took, uh, as they took Jericho, as they took Ai, uh, in the previous chapter, these people from Gibeon um, are pretty smart because they realize, you know what, we can't beat these guys. So what they did was they disguised themselves. They put on old clothes. Uh, they were very careful to completely alter their appearance. They brought provisions that were old. I mean, they set Joshua up and said, now they were only six miles away, but they said, we've come from a far kingdom. We've heard about what your God has done. And basically what they wanted to do was to make a covenant with Joshua and the people of Israel. Uh, and they pulled it off. They conned them. And what's happened here is that Joshua gave his word to the Gibeonites. And then later he finds out, well, there was a city that he was supposed to have destroyed. But because he gave his word and because he made a covenant, he had to honor the covenant because that's what God's people do. So they worked a deal where in exchange for their lives, they would serve the people of Israel and draw water and draw wood for them. Uh, and the Gibeonites were very pleased about this. What happens is, is that this king of Jerusalem um, heard that the inhabitants of Gibeon had made peace with Israel and were, with, and were within their land. Look at verse 2. 
he feared greatly because Gibeon was a great city, like one of the royal cities, and because it was greater than Ai, and all its men were mighty. So what does he do? He goes and rounds up some other kings from some other cities, and they're going to go make war. Verse 3, Then Adonai Zedek, king of Jerusalem, sent word to Hoham, king of Hebron, and to Piram, king of Jarmuth, and to Japhia, king of Lachish, and to Deber, king of Eglon, saying, Come up to me and help me, and let us attack Gibeon, for it has made peace with Joshua and with the army oh, and with the sons of Israel. So the five kings of the Amorites, the king of Jerusalem, the king of Hebron, the king of Jarmuth, the king of Lachish, and the king of Eglon, gathered together and went up, they with all their armies, and camped by Gibeon and fought against it. Um, these people were treacherous people. Uh, these particular people that are mentioned here, these five kings of the Amorites, they were, um, they were greatly feared because of the kind of people that they were. An ancient poem describes these people. What, I, what we need to understand here is that they were fierce and formidable opponents. Uh, they just weren't another army. These guys played hardball. Uh, if the Amorites were coming after you, it, it's sort of like in high school. You know, you get into a beef with somebody, you get into a beef with them. But in every high school, there's one guy that you don't want to get into a beef with. And maybe you can handle yourself, but you know what? If you're smart, you avoid this guy. That's how the Amorites were, you see. There's an ancient poem that says this about the Amorites. The weapon is his companion. They know nothing of submission. They eat uncooked flesh. And they do not bury their dead companions. Uh, the Amorites were um, wild people. They were dangerous people. They were greatly feared. Now you've got a consortium of Amorite people that are coming after the Gibeonites because the Gibeonites have made a covenant with Israel. That's the setting, and that's the stage. So what's the problem? Well, the problem is this, is that Gibeon suddenly is facing the Amorites and they know they can't take them, so what do they do? They put out a 911 call to Joshua. And we read about this in verse 6. Then the men of, G of Gibeon sent word to Joshua to the camp at Gilgal, saying, Do not abandon your servants. Come up to us quickly and save us and help us. For all the, king of the, all the kings of the Amorites that live in the hill country have assembled against us. Um, Verse 7, so Joshua went up from Gilgal, he and all the people of war with him, and all of the valiant warriors. Um, so they call Joshua. They call their newfound covenant partners. Gibeon doesn't have a chance against these guys, but now because of the deceit by which they conned Joshua and the children of Israel, now they're in a covenant and they are not hesitant to call on Joshua and on his army, and on his God to protect them. Uh, this is not what Joshua signed up for. This, this, quite frankly, this was not Joshua's fight. This was not Joshua's problem. It was the problem of the people of, uh, of, of the Gibeonites. But I want you to note here in um, verses 8 through 15, Note God's response to Joshua, because when, when they put out the, uh, the alert, when they put out the distress signal to Joshua, 
Joshua went. He didn't hesitate. He didn't um, say, gosh, guys, you know, you, you caught me at a bad time. Um, that's not what he did. He, he got his warriors, and he went up there. Why? Because he had made a covenant, and he had given his word. Um, that's what he did. This was an act of integrity. This was an act of someone following through with a commitment they had made that, quite frankly, was, um, was inconvenient, was uh, potentially disastrous. Uh, it's the kind of thing you don't want to get into. It's the kind of deal where you give your word and you regret that you gave your word. So, see, the question is, see, the, the question is always this. When, when you give your word or when you sign an agreement and it's convenient to follow through, well, it's never hard to do that because it's convenient and it's to your advantage. But, see, the real test is when you give your word, when you sign an agreement and suddenly circumstances change and it's not in your best interest, see, the question is, what are you going to do in that situation? See, that's what separates the men from the boys. Um, turn over to Psalm 15 with me real quick. We actually looked at this psalm, oh, four, five, six months ago when we were in Psalms. But in Psalm 15, you've got a description of a man of integrity. David wrote this, and in Psalm 15, he's talking about uh, the man who dwells on God's holy hill, the man who is in relationship with the Lord, um, the man who abides in God's tent. And when you think about this, he's talking about the behavior of those who are in the kingdom of God and in God's family. When it says, O Lord, who may abide in thy tent? Who abides in your tent? Who abides in your condo? Who abides in your house? Who abides in your apartment? Family members. See, that's what he's talking about. Lord, who may abide in thy tent? Well, he's talking about who's in, who lives in your family. Then he says, who may dwell on thy holy hill? See, that's your property. He's talking about a family issue here, and he's describing the character and integrity of someone who's in the family of God. Pretty high standards given in Psalm 15. Uh, it says, verse 2, he who walks with integrity, works righteousness, speaks truth in his heart. There should never be a question about um, you're keeping your word. It, uh, I mean, as you know, it used to be that business was done just on the basis of a guy's word, just on the basis of a handshake. Uh, might involve thousands of dollars. You know, if you go down here to Stonebriar Mall and all these shops around here, you've seen these uh, bronze longhorns, and they got... At every intersection, they got these, um, what do you call those things? Those, uh, what do you call them? Chuck wagons. Then they got these planter deals, these, these stones with, what the heck's going on back there? The longhorns back there or something. There's, there's a cattle drive coming in behind us. There's, if you've been at certain intersections, they've got these, uh, I want to call them stone facings, and then they've got uh, sculpted in, they got stories of the cattle drives. Have you guys been down there? You know what I'm talking about? I mean, and, and the thing is, 
wherever you are in the intersection, they're too long to read it. You got to move up, and there are all kinds of traffic problems there because, you know, SUVs are hitting each other because guys are trying to read the rest of the sentence. But all these facts, every time you look around at Four Corner, there's a different fact about the cattle drive. Well, the fact of the matter is, they would make deals uh, in terms of buying and selling herds of thousands and thousands and thousands of cattle with a handshake. And if a guy ever violated his word, he was toast. He was finished from then on because no one would ever do business with him. So what you said is what you delivered. Um, it goes on and says, he doesn't slander with his tongue, nor does evil to his neighbor, nor take up a reproach against his friend, in whose eyes a reprobate is despised. In our culture, reprobates are to be commended and accepted. And... Um, um, approved, but not in God's eyes. Um, but who honors those who fear the Lord, catch this, verse 4, he swears to his own hurt and doesn't change. That's a remarkable statement. What he's saying there is that a man of integrity, uh, when he gives his word and then circumstances change, and if you indeed keep your word, you are going to suffer loss or you're going to suffer uh, some kind of negative consequence, the man of integrity goes ahead and keeps his word even if it's going to cost him. That's the test of integrity. That's what separates the men from the boys. Anybody can keep their word when it's to your advantage to keep your word. But when it's going to cost you, when you're going to pay dearly, when, when it's going to uh, hit you in your pocketbook. See, there's the man of integrity, and there's the man of character. Uh, that's what Joshua did back here in Joshua 10. He'd given his word. He'd made a covenant with these guys. Had they conned him? You bet they had conned him. But he had still given his word, so he follows through. Now, uh, the Bible says that the eyes of the Lord are in every place. Sometimes we forget that fact. Uh, sometimes we forget that, uh, I, I, you know, this song just popped into my head, that some rock singer sings, some pop singer, and, and I'll hear it every once in a while. Um, what's it, is it Melissa? What's her name? Yeah, there you go. God is watching. You ever heard this song? God is watching uh, from a distance, from a distance, God, uh, from a distance. Huh? That's Bette Miller? Yeah, they're both the same. I mean, who knows? Um, anyway, it's one of those women, singers. And, but from a distance, from a distance. But see, I, that's kind of half right. Uh, God's just not distant. God is everywhere. And the eyes of the Lord are in every place. So, see, sometimes we think that we're by ourselves. Sometimes we think that we're alone. Sometimes we think that no one's around, and sometimes we think that no one's watching. That's never true. He's always there. He's always watching. Um, and it has been said that reputation is what people think you are. Character is what you are when no one else is around.
see. Um, Joshua made a pledge, and Joshua kept the pledge. What's interesting is that in verses 8 through 15, um, we see God's response to Joshua fulfilling his pledge. And let me mention something here that I have not mentioned to this point. Uh, back in Joshua 10, where he gets the word from the Gibeonites that they're in trouble and the Amorites are surrounding them and they're all, you know, they're going to go down and, and so come and help us. Uh, it says in verse 7, so Joshua went up from Gilgal, he and all the people of war with him and all the valiant warriors. Uh, what they did was to get there is that they marched 25 miles all night. Now, they just didn't march 25 miles. This is um, where the Gibeonites were in Gibeon is at a higher elevation than where Joshua and the people of Israel were. So it wasn't just a 25-mile all-night hike. If, if you ever go through and look at this terrain, it was 25 miles, and in that 25 miles, uh, they're going up 4,000 feet between the two cities in 25 miles. So this was an all-night, 25-mile hike, and they're climbing 4,000 feet. They immediately went to the Gibeonites because Joshua had given his word. Notice God's response to what Joshua did. Verse 8, And the Lord said to Joshua, Do not fear them, the Amorites. Now, anybody in their right mind would fear the Amorites. You'd be crazy not to fear the Amorites. Um, I, I've been reading a book this week called uh, uh, Good to Great. And uh, it's a business book. That is one of the best books I've ever written. I, I read a lot of business books just, just to read them. And uh, best business book I've ever read is The Effective Executive by Peter Drucker. I read it about 26 years ago. This, this is right up there with that book. And uh, one of the things that this guy talks about in this book is the need to confront facts brutally. Brutally. Um, uh, you're not a Pollyanna. You don't... Uh, uh, you don't ignore facts. Um, you, you, you want tough information. You want to know what you're dealing with. You want to know what's there. Uh, you don't skirt it. You don't avoid it. You just face it head on. And uh, uh, the brutal fact of the matter would be this. If you're, facing the, if you're facing the Amorites, you should fear them because they were fearful people. If Attila the Hun is coming, you're, you're, you're wise to have some fear. Uh, if the Assyrians were coming, you were wise to have fear. When the Assyrians would take a city, they would take all the leadership, uh, they, would, uh, they would cut off their heads, and the sign that the Assyrians had taken a city is that as you came up to the city gates, there would be a pyramid of human heads parked at the gates just to let you know who was in charge. Uh, God says to, to, to Joshua, do not fear them. Now catch this again, for I have given them 
into your hands. Not one of them shall stand before you. So Joshua came upon them suddenly by marching all night from Gilgal, 25-mile, all-night march, going up 4,000 feet. Uh, Because of the obedience of Joshua and because of Joshua's willingness to keep his word, God bless him. Now, one of the things we've been talking about, you know, this Christianity stuff, quite frankly, is not that complex. Um, Every once in a while, you come across something in the scriptures that are a little hard to understand. When I was up in Oregon this weekend, a young guy came up to me, and he had a passage, and it was a tough passage, and we're talking about it, we're trying to sort it out. It, it It was a tough one. And uh, when we were done talking, he said, man, he said, I I was hoping you'd have more answers for me. I said, yeah, I'm sorry, but I don't. I said, you know, I I think it was Mark Twain who said, you know, my problem, my biggest problem is not with the passages in the Bible I don't understand, but with the passages I do. You see, uh, one of the things that we have seen in, in the book of Joshua is that they go back, God takes them back to the covenant that he made with them in Deuteronomy 28. Anybody here remember us talking about Deuteronomy 28? Do you? Raise your hand if you do. I just want to see if we're getting through it. This is good. All right. Now, somebody tell me, this, I'm not trying to put anybody out to dry here, but tell me what the basic concept in Deuteronomy 28 is about. Blessings and curses. All right. Gosh, that does my heart good. All right. Um, in Deuteronomy 28, basic concept is this. God said, God said, now look at this. I got my mic caught in between the two podiums. I don't do well on Wednesday nights. What's that? Yeah, this is crazy. All right, this always happens to me on Wednesday nights. Do I still have a thing here? Yeah. By the way, when I was in Oregon this weekend, uh, I got up there. I was feeling fine, got up there Friday night to speak, and about uh, an hour before I'm getting up to speak, I start feeling nauseous, and about 10 minutes before I'm supposed to speak, I'm in the bathroom, keeled over with stomach cramps. What's that? Well, that's what I thought. I thought, my gosh, this this, uh, germ warfare is still going on. I couldn't make the session Friday night. Then I was able to uh, finally speak Saturday, and then I went back to bed, and then spoke Saturday night, and then went back to bed, and then, anyway, it was a great weekend. Had a wonderful time up there. (laughs) I'm just kind of stalling as I'm trying to fix this microphone. But I I really did think, oh, great, there's still anthrax here in the air conditioning duct, and it's, it's, anyway. That's a place you don't want to get sick, because they got to helicopter you out to, to even get any kind of medical attention. Now, what does that have to do with this text? Nothing. Where was I? Bessies and curses. In Deuteronomy 28, basically God said to Israel, if you obey me, if you obey my word, I will bless you. I'll bless you beyond your wildest dreams. Now, if if you haven't read Deuteronomy 28 recently, you ought to read it. Um, Because in Deuteronomy 28, God gives them a list of things that he will do for them that is, he's, I'm going to give you cities you didn't build. I'm going to give you crops you didn't plant. 
your wives won't miscarry, your livestock will be healthy. If they would walk in obedience to the Lord, he would bless them. If they would follow his word. But he goes on and say, if you disobey me, I will curse you. And the curses are three times longer. They're three times longer than the, uh, than the blessings. Now, inevitably, when we say that, somebody says, well, that doesn't apply to us because we're under the new covenant. I want to tell you, that's a bunch of malarkey. If today, right now, you've got a choice and I've got a choice, I'm going to live my life. If uh, tax time's coming up, I can look at that. I'm going to turn and go, oh, man, I got, I, you know, I got the option. I can give up my integrity and I can play with numbers and will. Now, I'm not talking about not taking every legitimate deduction. There are deductions. You can take a legitimate Take the thing. Use your head. Get the best CPA that you can. Play according to the rules. But you don't twist the rules. Let me ask you something. You take two Christian guys. One guy does his taxes right. One guy willfully, deliberately um, changes numbers, avoid things, doesn't report, doesn't do this. We're under the new covenant. Is God going to bless both of those guys? What do you think? If you were a father and you had a son that was obedient, one that was disobedient, would you treat him the same? Would you handle him the same? No. I mean, just common sense says you're going to bless obedience, you're going to discipline disobedience. Joshua, you're going to see how Joshua was remarkably rewarded because of his obedience. One of the things we want to learn, guys, 1 Corinthians 10 says, speaking of the children of Israel, these things were written for our instruction. So, so a real basic principle is this. If you want God's favor in your life, don't screw around with sin. It's real basic. If, if you want the good hand of God on your life, if you want the blessing of God, and, and who wouldn't want that? If you want that, then you can't continue to go against Scripture and to go against what you know to be right. You're just digging yourself in a hole. There's an application of this principle. Now, we work hard. Uh, we, uh, we fulfill our responsibilities. Uh, you be a faithful man. And God honors that. I want to show you how God honors that. Uh, in, in, verse, um, in verse 8, God says, Don't fear them. I have given them into your hands. Not one of them shall stand before you. Uh, Joshua came up upon them suddenly by marching all night from Gilgal. So did Joshua do his work? Did Joshua keep his word? See, what you're going to see here, there's always the two sides. There's the human and there's the divine. There's the work we do. There's the work God does. Joshua did his work. Joshua kept his word, and he was so careful about his word. Here's what I want you to catch. He was so careful about keeping his word and keeping his covenant that when he heard there was a need, he immediately responded. He didn't say, hey, guys, first thing in the morning, we got to get up and go up there. He didn't do that. He immediately fulfilled the responsibility that he had signed off on in the covenant. So he marches all night. 
That's what he did. Now note what God did. Verse 10. And the Lord confounded them before Israel, and he slew them with a great slaughter at Gibeon, and pursued them by the way of the ascent of Beth Horon, and struck them as far as Azekah and Makeda. And it came about as they fled from before Israel, why they were at the descent of Beth Horon. Catch this that the Lord threw large stones from heaven on them as far as Ezekiah, and they died. There were more who died from the hailstones than those whom the sons of Israel killed with the sword. Isn't that wild? Don't you want the blessing of God in your life? Hey, I'm, I'm all for this strategy. But you don't get this strategy by consistently, willfully going against the word of God. God doesn't honor that. Uh, verse 12. So right there, you, you've, you've got an amazing thing happens because in response to, God, to, to Joshua's integrity, um, God does not one miracle, he does two miracles. Let me stop here, though, and mention something. God is very careful. He watches over his word to perform it, the Bible says. Uh, real quickly, turn to 2 Samuel 21. Just go over to your right. You'll run into 2 Samuel. In 2 Samuel 21, and we got a situation here that's happening 400 years after Joshua. 2 Samuel 21. It says, Now there was a famine in the days of David for three years, year after year. And David sought the presence of the Lord, I mean, to find out what's going on here. Because, you see, David knew Deuteronomy 28. It didn't make sense that there'd be a famine. And he's seeking the Lord to figure out what's wrong, because something's got to be wrong if God's withholding his blessing and there's famine in the land. And the Lord said, catch this, it is for Saul and his bloody house because he put the who to death? Gibeonites. Saul, 400 years after Joshua had made a covenant with the Gibeonites, Saul, in a moment of anger and rage, violated the covenant and slew a bunch of the Gibeonites. And because of the sin of Saul, disobedience to the covenant and disobedience to the word of God, 400 years after the fact, Israel is being cursed. You see how this works? Amazing, isn't it? All right. God's serious about this stuff. All right, let's go back to Joshua 10. Because of Joshua's obedience, God does two miracles to assist Israel. Uh, we just read about the first miracle. More will killed by the hailstones than by Joshua's men. Verses 12 through 14 describes the second miracle. Then Joshua spoke to the Lord in the day when the Lord delivered up the Amorites for the sons of Israel, and he said in the sight of Israel, now this is wild stuff. He says, O sun, stand still at Gibeon, and O moon, in the valley of Aijalon. So the sun stood still, and the moon stopped until the nation avenged themselves of their enemies. Is it not written in the book of Jashar? Uh, the book of Jashar was a, a 
collection of poetical writings of important events in Israel's history. Is it not written in the book of Jashar, and the sun stopped in the middle of the sky and did not hasten to go down for about a whole day? And there was no day like that before it or after it when the Lord listened to the voice of a man, for the Lord fought for Israel. What happened? There was not enough daylight to finish the battle and it was a critical battle because it was the opportunity to take the armies of five cities at one time. This was just no average battle. So what does Joshua do? He basically um, asked the Lord to do something absolutely miraculous. Now, now, now remember this. He had already seen the hailstones come down. Uh, was he reminded of the power of God and the availability of God. Yeah, he was. Um, and what happened is that his prayer was answered. Now, this is, this is one of these situations where we see two miracles that occurred. And this is one of these deals where people look at this and they go, Christians look at this, and the first thing they immediately try to do is to start explaining this away. Well, now, obviously... Now, obviously, it can't mean, obviously, it does mean. This is precisely what happened. Um, you say, well, wait a minute. This, this would have all sorts of ramifications. Yeah, that's exactly right. But you see, God is big enough, and God is in control enough that God, in order to perform a miracle, knows all the ramifications, knows all of the uh, consequential issues that would result from that miraculous act, but God is big enough that only can do the miracle, but he can take care of all the aftershocks and all the after effects. To Adam and build a wall of water and they cross on dry land, why couldn't God do this? See, this is where we stumble. We stumble at the miracles in the scripture. Um, but the Bible is full of miracles. Full of miracles. We just had Easter. What's Easter about? It's about the resurrection of Jesus Christ. He died on the cross for our sins. Three days later, he rose literally, bodily, from the grave. Um, the widow at Zarephath. She's getting ready to have her last meal. Her and her boy, she's a single mom that's having trouble making it. There's a famine. She's getting ready to get a little meal, a little flour. They're going to cook it. Her and her boy are going to eat it, and they're going to die. Here comes the prophet Elijah, and he says, could you give me something to eat? She says, all we got is enough. I'm going to make this for my son, and we're going to eat it, and we're going to die. And he says, would you give it to me? What would she do? She gave it to him. And for as long as that famine lasted, which was three and a half years, that oil, that flour, it never ran out. Never. Never. And, and, you know, it's interesting. The Bible doesn't say that suddenly the oil started flooding out of, the, out of the pot. It doesn't say that she had to go get pots and pots and pots and fill them out. She didn't have to go down to Sam's Club and buy more pots and fill it up. You know what? It was the same pot. It was the same pot. Oil. I'll tell you what. This is... Uh, Oh, I know. Yeah. So you're laughing. I'm not laughing. 
See, it was. Yeah, forget it. I really don't care. But thanks, Jim. Roy, I'm sorry. It's all right. It's all right. I'm gonna let it. I'm gonna let it go. But you see, you see the fact of the matter. Uh, that pot of oil, she'd go in and dip out, and and you know it was interesting. I mean, she'd look, and as far as she knew, I mean, that oil didn't suddenly come up. It was pretty much where it was. But whenever she would dip out, you could be thinking, well, I mean, maybe I got enough here for another couple days. It never ran out. Never. That's a miracle. Uh, let's, let's just raise a couple of things here. I want to talk a little bit tonight about miracles. Because you get a lot of stuff being said about miracles. On one side of the equation, you've got people saying, well, you know, here's a problem with the Scripture. This, this could not have happened. This couldn't have happened. Well, if this couldn't happen, why could any other miracle in the Bible happen? I mean, God is God. God can do whatever God wants to do whenever he wants to do it. So on one side, we have the people that say, this just couldn't have, this couldn't have occurred. There are too many ramifications of this. This, this, is, this, is, uh, this is not right. Then on the other side, you've got people, Christian people, and they got 15, 20, 25 miracles happening about every six hours. It's just one miracle after another, after another, after another. And if you don't have major miracles happening in your life, right after breakfast, right after lunch, right after dinner, there's something wrong with you. You know what I'm talking about. Let's see if we can figure this out in terms of miracles. Uh, first of all, some people point out about Joshua. Why did Joshua address the sun instead of the earth, because the earth rotates on its axis around the sun. Well, he was using the language of observation from his perspective on the earth. The weatherman says that sunrise will be at 627 a.m. We don't call the station and complain, do we? No, it's, he was using observation. Question is, what actually happened? Various theories have been offered, included, including such devices as refraction of light, Clouds over the sun and eclipses. Many have held to the eclipse view. But verse 14 cancels that out. This could not have been an eclipse. Because verse 14 says, and there was no day like that, before it or after it. Uh, Christopher Columbus was in Jamaica. There was a severe food shortage in 1504. And the Indians refused to trade food um, to give to his crew. Uh, Columbus, who had a chart and had an almanac, spoke to the Indians and he threatened to blot out the moon if they didn't cooperate. And guess what happened that night? There was an eclipse. And they had more food than they needed. <laughs> what is a miracle? Um, when Hitler was named Chancellor of Germany, one of his associates said, it's a miracle. When uh, the United States hockey team beat Russia in 1980, that was a miracle. No, I mean, it, it, I'm being facetious here. Al Michaels, if you remember when they won and the clock was ticking down, anybody remember what Al Michaels said? He said, do you believe in miracles? Yeah. Uh, many of us use the word miracle to describe a circumstance or an event that was highly unlikely 
happen. But that's not the biblical concept of a miracle. I'm going to read you some stuff I put down here. The biblical concept of a miracle is that of an event which runs counter to the observed processes of nature. The word observed is very important. This has been emphasized for hundreds of years by Christian thinkers who emphasize that miracles are not events which run counter to nature, but rather are events which run counter to what is known about nature. In other words, there may be higher physical laws which remain unknown to man, but are known to God alone. Now let's think about miracles in the New Testament. Uh, when Jesus came, there were three kinds of miracles, okay? Number one, there were healings. Number two, he cast out demons. Number three, there were miracles of nature. That was the creating of the loaves and the fishes. He did it twice. Stilling the storm, turning water into wine. Now, what's interesting is this. The apostles did many miracles, but they never did miracles of nature, did they? Only Christ did miracles of nature. In John 14, 12, Jesus said that he who believes in me, the works that I do, shall he do also, and greater works than these shall he do. When Jesus said greater works shall be done, he didn't mean the type of miracle because, quite frankly, the apostles couldn't do what Jesus did. The apostles never did works of miracles in regard to nature. They never did that. Only Jesus did that. He had to be referring, when he said greater works, he had to be talking about greater in number. Um, now, here's where it gets interesting in regard to miracles and to the ministry of Jesus. Only Jesus did miracles of nature. And there appear to be two types of miracles concerning nature. Number one, there are miracles of acceleration. I, I really like this stuff. This is pretty wild. Miracles of acceleration. God accelerates the normal procedure of nature in calming the storm instantaneously instead of over a period of hours or days. If a storm calms, it's God who... God controls all things. You know that. God controls weather. He's in complete charge. As R.C. Sproul says, there's not one maverick molecule in all of the world. Isn't that a great thought? He's in absolute charge. He's in charge of the events that occurred today, the events that occurred in your life, the events that occurred in my life, he's in absolute total charge. He sends storms, he ends storms. Normally storms will uh, depreciate in their intensity over a period of hours or half a day or a day. In miracles of acceleration, God accelerates the normal procedure of nature in calming the storm instantaneously instead of over a period of hours. The feeding of the 5,000 was an acceleration of what God does daily, namely, bringing an incredible harvest out of just a few seeds. Is, is that not an amazing thing just by itself? You put seeds in the ground, water, cultivate. Weeks go by, months go by, and out of those seeds you've got harvest. That's an amazing thing. That is a miraculous. 
The changing of water into wine might be seen as God speeding up the normal process of rain falling to the earth, irrigating the grapevine, and fermenting the grape juice into wine. In other words, the miracles of acceleration produce bread that is freshly baked and wine that is instantly fermented. Now, wild stuff. So, there are miracles of acceleration. Now, there are miracles of deceleration. All right? This may be what we have in Joshua. Dr. Gleason Archer points out that many scholars believe that Joshua 10:13, the sun did not hasten to go down for about a whole day, the scripture says, refers to a retardation of the earth's rotation so that the rotation took approximately 48 hours instead of 24. There were actually um, there was actually a guy named Dr. Pickering at the Harvard Observatory who traced, he, he, he had done some astronomical calculations. There were several scientists that have done this and basically have, have figured out there appears to be 24 hours that were missing. Uh, Dr. Pickering of the Harvard Observatory traced it back to the time of Joshua. Now, here's a question. And this, this kind of pumps you up, doesn't it? I mean, see a miracle like this? I mean, it's all right. Uh, I mean, I don't, who is not for miracles? I'm for miracles. You're for miracles. Quite frankly, we're thinking, I can use a, yeah, I can use a miracle. <laughs> Here's a question. Why doesn't God do miracles like this in my life today? Here's an answer. Miracles are part of God's creation. The difference between a miracle and an ordinary event in nature lies in the rarity of miracles. The sun doesn't stand still every 50 years. The bread and fish were only multiplied twice. The storm was calmed just once. See, when you look at the whole scriptures, and see, there's a lot of teaching, quite frankly, in charismatic circles that says, um, uh, you know, you need, you need to reach out and get your miracle. This is your day. Do you realize how rare miracles are? Do you realize in the biblical revelation, in all of the revelation of Scripture, do you realize how rare miracles are when you take all of biblical history? Uh, if you start thinking biblically, and you start thinking historically, uh, they're pretty rare. They're very rare. Um, you saw miracles under Moses when he led the children out of Egypt. But uh, let me ask you something. Did Joseph see these kind of miracles in his life? Instantaneous? Did, did Joseph have any recorded miracles? No. There really aren't uh, miracles like this recorded in Abraham's Life, I mean, other than the fact of Isaac. But in terms of the miracle, see, you don't really see them early on. It's not until you get to Moses bringing the children of Israel out, and then they come into the promised land. But then, then you got a period of time. It's not until the prophets, until Elijah shows up on the scene and starts doing miracles. God works through him. But then you had prolonged periods of time where they went without miracles, the period of the judges. Uh, a lot of periods of, of the kings. You didn't have, I mean, you're talking hundreds of years. 
And then Jesus comes, Jesus does miracles, and then you have the time of the apostles in the book of Acts, they did miracles. But when you put the whole scope, miracles like this are exceedingly rare. Um, so when we, now, now don't, don't misunderstand me. God can do anything he wants, anytime he wants. And the last thing we want to do is get in a position where we say to God what he can and cannot do. Because God just loves people to do that. And he's going to show you up and he's going to show you wrong. Um, because miracles are rare, it doesn't mean that God is not working in our lives on a regular basis. Um, God is working in our lives on a regular basis, but quite frankly, we get so used to what God's doing in our lives that we cease to be amazed. Jim Bishop was a great columnist who died a number of years ago, and he wrote a column, uh, and the column was this. It was entitled, There Is No God. Let me read this column to you. Bishop writes, There is no God. All of the wonders around us are accidental. No almighty hand made a thousand billion stars. They made themselves. No power keeps them on their steady course. The earth spins itself to keep the oceans from falling off towards the sun. Infants teach themselves to cry when they are hungry or hurt. A small, a small flower invented itself so that we could extract digitalis for sick hearts. The earth gave itself day and night, tilted itself so that we get seasons. Without the magnetic poles, man would be unable to navigate the trackless oceans of water and air, but they just grew there. How about the sugar thermostat in the pancreas? It maintains a level of sugar in the blood sufficient for energy. Without it, all of us would fall into a coma and die. Why does snow sit on mountaintops waiting for the warm spring sun to melt it at just the right time for the young crops and farms below to drink? A very lovely accident. The human heart will beat for 70 or 80 years without faltering. How does it get sufficient rest between beats? A kidney will filter poison from the blood and leave good things alone. How does it know one from the other? Who gave the human tongue flexibility to form words and a brain to understand them, but denied it to all other animals? Who showed a womb how to take the love of two persons and keep splitting a tidy ovum until in time a baby would have the proper number of fingers, eyes, and ears and hair in the right places, and come into the world when it is strong enough to sustain life. Those are miraculous things, but we forget about them. Uh, God is at work all around us, guys. Now, let me give you some good news. In, in the last, in, in the last uh, year, see, I, here, here's what I want you to do. I, I do not, we, we have to understand this. I want us to take away a couple principles from this. Here's my first principle. God honors those who honor him. If you want God to work in your life, honor him and obey him. We saw a couple of weeks ago that disobedience slows or stops the blessing of God in your life. Don't get into that. Don't don't put up with it. Is it uh, if there's habitual sin in your life, 
you have got to get serious about dealing with that. You have got to uh, take steps by God's power to kill that sin in your life. Now, that's a process. Uh, and when God, listen, God doesn't expect perfection. God's looking at the heart. It's when we coddle sin. It's when we put up with sin. It's when we rationalize sin that we get in trouble. Joshua obeyed the covenant. Joshua kept his word, and the blessing and favor of God was on his life. That's still true today. Absolutely, that's still true today. Here's a second principle. God is even good in our affliction. God is even good in our affliction. David said in Psalms, it was good for me that I was afflicted. Oftentimes, when, when we are afflicted, oftentimes when we are in a hardship, oftentimes when our circumstances are not changing, we question the goodness of God. But we do not know the breadth of God's wisdom. Let me ask you something. How do you know? How, how do you know that if God were to remove that affliction from your heart, that affliction from your life, that because that affliction is gone in your life, that that affliction would cease to be a an anchor that keeps you focused and dependent on God? And how do you know that if that affliction wasn't removed, that you would not cease to or, or begin to wander and begin to lose your heart for the Lord and begin. You see, oftentimes it's our affliction that keeps us focused on God. God has purposes in affliction that he allows into the lives of believers. And the answer is not always an immediate miracle. We think it is. God knows what's best. Oftentimes when there's a physical affliction, we think the very best possible thing that could happen would be for God to remove this thing from me physically. God doesn't always work like that. Paul had an affliction. It appears to be a physical affliction, a thorn in the flesh. In 2 Corinthians 12, Paul was taken to heaven. He saw things that a man is not permitted to speak. Paul says, in order to keep myself from exalting myself, a thorn was given me in the flesh. Three times I asked the Lord to remove it, and the Lord refused to do it, for God said, my strength is perfected in what? Weakness. We want to be strong. God keeps us weak. Because that keeps us dependent on him, and when God works in our lives, he gets the glory and honor. <clears throat> now I want to wrap this up. Are you saying, then, then Steve, that doesn't give me a lot of hope? I want to tell you something. You've got all kinds of hope. You never know, you never know when God is going to do something remarkable. Um, I don't think you guys have met my brother Jeff. Uh, Jeff is my youngest brother. My middle brother Mike passed away a couple of years ago. Uh, my brother Jeff, um, I, I pastored a church in California, Central Peninsula Church, and when I left, they called Jeff to be pastor. Jeff was there 13 years. Jeff, Jeff is a guy that has a gift of evangelism. He's, he's a remarkable guy. Um, 
He has a way with unbelievers. He's an excellent Bible teacher. Um, uh, trained under Ray Steadman at Peninsula Bible Church. Very gifted guy. When he was at uh, UCLA, he was in a fraternity. Uh, the vast majority of guys were, uh, were Jewish guys. Uh, Jeff was elected president of the fraternity. He just actually was rooming there and um, was, uh, uh, quite frankly, before he left, over half the guys he led to Christ. Uh, he has an amazing gift, excellent teacher. He has, uh, he has an ability with people that don't fit in typical Christian molds. Uh, he pastored this church in California, did a remarkable job. But one of the things that happened to Jeff is that when Jeff played football at UCLA, he had his knee drained 65 times held the record. And finally they said, you're done, Jeff, you can't play anymore. And he was finished with football. So then he went out and played rugby for 14 years. <laughs> Typical linebacker. Um, well, what happened, uh, Jeff got in his early 30s and he started getting knee pain and his knee got so bad that they said to him, they said, uh, Jeff, you're gonna have a total knee replacement. And you don't do that to a guy that's in his 30s. I mean, they, they'll tell you, you want to wait till you're 50 or 55. Uh, the guy was the orthopedic surgeon for the 49ers, did Jeff's knee. He told Jeff, he says, you have the worst knee I've ever seen in my life. They did the knee surgery. It didn't take. Uh, it didn't improve. Jeff lived in chronic pain. For the last, um, let, let me say this to you. Jeff has had so many surgeries, we can't begin to count them. Uh, Jeff, about seven years ago had to resign his ministry because he lived in chronic pain, uh, had to leave the church. He would sleep on average of an hour and a half to two hours a night, was on 180 milligrams of morphine a day, a day. You realize if you and I, if we took that much, it'd probably kill us. That's a lot of morphine. He would take it a day. Uh, this guy who's a gifted guy, uh, he lost Jeff lost everything, lost his ministry, lost everything. They moved to Scottsdale because of the weather. Uh, Jeff basically was just doped up, and he was a shell of what he used to be. Um, he was finished. He was over. Uh, I, I, I could hardly have an intelligent conversation with him because he was so doped up. And... Uh, um, about a year and a half ago, um, found out that this, he'd actually had new, two complete knee replacements. Uh, none of them took. It was a horrible situation. Started coming loose, and he was going to have to have a third knee replacement. You don't have a third knee replacement at 46 years old. And we were all dreading this for Jeff because we know the hell that he goes through when he has surgeries. I happened to be in Phoenix two days after Jeff had that knee surgery. And I remember walking into his house, and we're the whole family were just dreading this. I'll never forget this. I walk into the house, and there's Jeff sitting in a lazy boy recliner drinking a Diet Coke and watching a ball game. He goes, hey, Steve, how you doing? And I just looked at him. And I was in total shock. And I said, Jeff. And he, he said, I said, you're doing, I said, what happened? He said, he said I'm fine. I said, I know you're fine. Uh, let me tell you something. That's been a year and a half you know how much morphine Jeff takes a day today? Zero. He takes no morphine. In the last six months, he's been to Russia. He's been uh, speaking in retreats all over the country. Speaking, and I want to tell you something. We're all shocked because what God has done, did, did God heal him? 
Well, let me put it this way. This third surgery is taken. And Jeff's got his life back. And we're all shocked. We're all shocked. In fact, I'll be honest with you. It was so bad that when he had the third knee replacement, I didn't even pray that God would intervene for him. That's how bad my faith was. But he's got his life back. I'll give you one other one. I, 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 I know a guy, and I'm going to keep this real confidential, no details. Known this guy a long time. Good man, loves Christ. Uh, has a horrible marriage. Because he has a wife. And you're going to say, Steve, you're going to blame. I, I'm just telling you, he has a wife who has such a horrible background that this woman is so scarred and was so abused and so beat up that her capacity for love and giving love is extremely limited. This has been the thorn in this guy's flesh. Um, a very, very, very difficult marriage. And about a year ago, I was having dinner with him, and there was another guy at the table. And as we were talking, I, this guy made several allusions to his wife that really got my attention because he talked about how much he loved her. He talked about how wonderful things were, what a great woman she I'm kind of looking at him out of the corner of my eye. And then later, when the two of us were together, he started telling me about some things that had happened where they had read a book, they had had some dialogue, and suddenly, This guy was in such despair a year before. He would never divorce his wife, but he was in such despair over the condition of their relationship. And a year later, he is telling me about a change that God has brought in their relationship that he thought would never, ever be there. He said, I've never loved my wife this much. We've never had as deep a relationship as we have, we, we enjoy. And he said, quite frankly, we've never had the sexual intimacy that we're enjoying right now. I say, praise God for that. Are you guys, did you guys just hear what I said? That's a good thing, that sexual intimacy thing. You, you've heard about, you've read about that, haven't you? What's the name of the book? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yeah, Benny Hinn wrote it. No, I don't know, no. I don't know the name of the book, but, but let me say this to you. It's not the book. It's Christ. He's the one. I, I, I want to balance this miracle stuff out. <laughs> Miracles are rare, but let me tell you something. Does God work in our lives? Has God been good? We could go around this room tonight, and there are guys that could give incredible testimonies of what they've seen God do in their lives in the last year significant works of God that have taken place. I want to see that in my life, and I want to enjoy that in my life. Don't you? Sin doesn't let that happen. So let's not touch it with a 10-foot pole. Let's be men of holiness. Let's be men of integrity. Let's be men that do what's right, even if it costs us something. God's got his eye on us, and God will honor it, and God will bless us. You guys believe that? Are you encouraged to keep on keeping on? All right, let's stand and we'll pray. Lord, some of us are facing situations that, quite frankly, appear to be a little bit hopeless. We, uh, we've gotten into some despair, and we wonder if it's ever going to change. We, um, quite frankly, have gotten so discouraged that we have quit praying. <laughs> 
never expecting that you would intervene. Lord, we uh, cannot predict what you're going to do. We can't. We, we, we can't uh, do statistical analysis on your mercy and grace and how you express it. All we know, Lord, is that you're there and that every single one of us can look in our lives and we can see your faithfulness. You don't always work the way we'd like you to. You don't always do it in the time that we'd like you to, but you work. And, Lord, we trust you. Thank you that you have the ability, Lord, for those of us that are in a, a season of drought Thank you that you have the ability to accelerate blessing in our lives when you so desire. You have the ability to give us 10 years of blessing in one year. You have the ability to restore a broken relationship. And then, Lord, sometimes you decelerate. Sometimes there are prolonged periods where we're in the wilderness and we don't see favor and we don't see your good hand and we don't understand what's happening. That's because you control all the events of our lives, and you're doing something that we can't see. Lord, wherever we are in that process, give us hope, help us to trust your character, and help us to stay away from evil. Help us to stay away from violating your word. Give us a love for truth. Give us a love for your word. When we do blow it, when we do sin, may we immediately deal with it, confess it, take it before you. We want to be your men. We want to walk with you, and we ask your favor, and we thank you that it's upon us. Encourage us with these words, we pray. In the name of Jesus, amen.